Section 2 of An American Tragedy, Volume 1, by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Book 1, Chapter 2. That such a family, thus cursorily presented, might have a different and somewhat peculiar history could well be anticipated, and it would be true. Indeed, this one presented one of those anomalies of psychic and social reflex and motivation, such as would tax the skill of not only the psychologist, but the chemist and the physicist as well to unravel. To begin with, Asa Griffiths, the father, was one of those poorly integrated and correlated organisms, the product of an environment and a religious theory, but with no guiding or mental insight of his own, yet sensitive and therefore highly emotional, and without any practical sense whatsoever. Indeed, it would be hard to make clear just how life appealed to him, or what the true hue of his emotional responses was. On the other hand, as has been indicated, his wife was of a firmer texture, but with scarcely any truer or more practical insight into anything. The history of this man and his wife is of no particular interest here, save as it affected their boy of twelve, Clyde Griffiths. This youth, aside from a certain emotionalism and exotic sense of romance which characterized him, and which he took more from his father than from his mother, brought a more vivid and intelligent imagination to things, and was constantly thinking of how he might better himself if he had a chance, places to which he might go, things he might see, and how differently he might live, if only this, that, and the other thing were true. The principal thing that troubled Clyde up to his fifteenth year, and for long after in retrospect, was that the calling or profession of his parents was the shabby thing that it appeared to be in the eyes of others. For so often throughout his youth, in different cities in which his parents had conducted a mission or spoken on the streets, Grand Rapids, Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, lastly Kansas City, it had been obvious that people, at least the boys and girls he encountered, looked down upon him and his brothers and sisters for being the children of such parents. On several occasions, and much against the mood of his parents, who never countenanced such exhibitions of temper, he had stopped to fight with one or another of these boys. But always, beaten or victorious, he had been made conscious of the fact that the work his parents did was not satisfactory to others, shabby, trivial, and always he was thinking of what he would do once he reached a place where he could get away. For Clyde's parents had proved impractical in the matter of the future of their children. They did not understand the importance or the essential necessity for some form of practical or professional training for each and every one of their young ones. Instead, being wrapped up in the notion of evangelizing the world, they had neglected to keep their children in school in any one place. They had moved here and there, sometimes in the very midst of an advantageous school season, because of a larger and better religious field in which to work. And there were times when, the work proving highly unprofitable, and Asa being unable to make much money at the two things he most understood, gardening and canvassing for one invention or another, they were quite without sufficient food or decent clothes, and the children could not go to school. In the face of such situations as these, whatever the children might think, Asa and his wife remained as optimistic as ever, or they insisted to themselves that they were, and had unwavering faith in the Lord and his intention to provide. The combination home and mission which this family occupied was dreary enough in most of its phases to discourage the average youth or girl of any spirit. It consisted in its entirety of one long store floor in an old and decidedly colorless and inartistic wooden building, which was situated in that part of Kansas City which lies north of Independence Boulevard and west of Troost Avenue, 
the exact street or place being called Bickle, a very short thoroughfare opening off Missouri Avenue, a somewhat more lengthy but no less nondescript highway. And the entire neighborhood in which it stood was very faintly, and yet not agreeably redolent, of a commercial life which had long since moved farther south, if not west. It was some five blocks from that spot on which, twice a week, the open-air meetings of these religious enthusiasts and proselytizers were held. And it was the ground floor of this building, looking out into Bickle Street, at the front and some dreary backyards of equally dreary frame houses, which was divided at the front into a hall, forty by twenty-five feet in size, in which had been placed some sixty collapsible wooden chairs, a lectern, a map of Palestine or the Holy Land, and four wall decorations, some twenty-five printed but unframed mottos, which read, in part, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Take hold of shield and buckler, and stand up for mine help. Psalms chapter 35 verse 2. And ye my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 31. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Psalms chapter 69, verse 5. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. For the day of the Lord is near. Obadiah chapter 15. For there shall be no reward to the evil man. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 20. Look then, not upon the wine when it is red, it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Proverbs, chapter 23, verses 31 and 32. These mighty adjurations were as silver and gold plates set in a wall of dross. The rear forty feet of this very commonplace floor was intricately and yet neatly divided into three small bedrooms, a living room which overlooked the backyard, and wooden fences of yards no better than those at the back. Also, a combination kitchen and dining room exactly ten feet square, and a storeroom for mission tracts, hymnals, boxes, trunks, and whatever else of non-immediate use, but of assumed value, which the family owned. This particular small room lay immediately to the rear of the mission hall itself, and into it, before or after speaking, or at such times conference seemed important, both Mr. and Mrs. Griffiths were wont to retire, also at times to meditate or pray. How often had Clyde and his sisters, and younger brother, seen his mother or father, or both, in conference with some derelict or semi-repentant soul who had come for advice or aid, most usually for aid. And here at times, when his mother's and father's financial difficulties were greatest, they were to be found thinking, or as Asa Griffiths was wont helplessly to say at times, praying their way out, a rather ineffectual way, as Clyde began to think later. And the whole neighborhood was so dreary and run-down that he hated the thought of living in it, let alone being part of a work that required constant appeals for aid, as well as constant prayer and thanksgiving to sustain it. Mrs. Elvira Griffiths, before she had married Asa, had been nothing but an ignorant farm girl, brought up without much thought of religion of any kind, but having fallen in love with him, she had become inoculated with the virus of evangelism and proselytizing which dominated him and had followed him gladly and enthusiastically in all of his ventures and through all of his vagaries. Being rather flattered by the knowledge that she could speak and sing, her ability to sway and persuade and control people with the word of God, as she saw it, 
she'd become more or less pleased with herself on this account and so persuaded to continue. Occasionally a small band of people followed the preachers to their mission, or learning of its existence through their street work appeared there later, those odd and mentally disturbed or distrait souls who are to be found in every place. And it had been Clyde's compulsory duty throughout the years, when he could not act for himself, to be in attendance at these various meetings, and always he had been more irritated than favorably influenced by the types of men and women who came here, mostly men, down-and-out laborers, loafers, drunkards, wastrels, the botched and helpless who seemed to drift in because they had no other place to go, and they were always testifying as to how God or Christ or divine grace had rescued them from this or that predicament, never how they had rescued anyone else. And always his father and mother were saying amen and glory to God, and singing hymns and afterward taking up a collection for the legitimate expenses of the hall, collections which, as he surmised, were little enough, barely enough to keep the various missions they had conducted in existence. The one thing that really interested him in connection with his parents was the existence somewhere in the east, in a small city called Lycurgus, near Utica, he understood, of an uncle, a brother of his father's, who was plainly different from all this. That uncle, Samuel Griffiths by name, was rich. In one way and another, from casual remarks dropped by his parents, Clyde had heard references to certain things this particular uncle might do for a person, if he but would references to the fact that he was a shrewd, hard businessman, that he had a great house and a large factory on Lycurgus for the manufacture of collars and shirts, which employed not less than 300 people, that he had a son who must be about Clyde's age, and several daughters, two at least, all of whom must be, as Clyde imagined, living in luxury in Lycurgus. News of all this had apparently been brought west in some way by people who knew Asa and his father and brother, as Clyde pictured this uncle, he must be a kind of Croesus, living in ease and luxury there in the East, while here in the West, Kansas City, he and his parents and his brother and sisters were living in the same wretched and humdrum, hand-to-mouth state they had always characterized their lives. But for this, apart from anything he might do for himself, as he early began to see, there was no remedy. For at fifteen, and even a little earlier, Clyde began to understand that his education, as well as his sisters and brothers, had been sadly neglected. And it would be rather hard for him to overcome this handicap, seeing that other boys and girls with more money and better homes were being trained for special kinds of work. How was one to get a start under such circumstances? Already when, at the age of thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, he began looking in the papers, which, being too worldly, had never been admitted to his home, he found that mostly skilled help was wanted, or boys to learn trades, in which at the moment he was not very interested. For true to the standard of the American youth, or the general American attitude toward life, he felt himself above the type of labor, which was purely manual. What? Run a machine? Lay bricks? Learn to be a carpenter, or a plasterer, or a plumber? When boys know better than himself were clerks, and druggists' assistants, and bookkeepers, and assistants in banks, and real estate offices, and such? Wasn't it menial? as miserable as the life he had thus far been leading, to wear old clothes and get up so early in the morning, and do all the commonplace things such people had to do? For Clyde was as vain and as proud as he was poor. He was one of those interesting individuals who looked upon himself as a thing apart, never quite wholly and indissolubly merged with the family of which he was a member, 
and never with any profound obligations to those who had been responsible for his coming into the world on the contrary he was inclined to study his parents not too sharply or bitterly but with a very fair grasp of their qualities and capabilities and yet with so much judgment in that direction he was never quite able at least not until he had reached his sixteenth year to formulate any policy in regard to himself and then only in a rather fumbling and tentative way incidentally by that time the sex lore or appeal had begun to manifest itself and he was already intensely interested and troubled by the beauty of the opposite sex its attractions for him and his attraction for it and naturally and coincidentally the matter of his clothes and his physical appearance had begun to trouble him not a little how he looked and how other boys looked it was painful to him now to think that his clothes were not right that he was not as handsome as he might be not as interesting what a wretched thing it was to be born poor and not to have any one to do anything for you and not to be able to do very much for yourself casual examination of himself in mirrors whenever he found them tended rather to assure him that he was not so bad looking a straight well-cut nose high white forehead wavy glossy black hair eyes that were black and rather melancholy at times and yet the fact that his family was the unhappy thing that it was that he had never had any real friends and could not have any as he saw it because of the work and connection of his parents was now tending more and more to induce a kind of mental depression or melancholia which promised not so well for his future it served to make him rebellious and hence lethargic at times because of his parents and in spite of his looks which were really agreeable and more appealing than most he was inclined to misinterpret the interested looks which were cast at him occasionally by young girls in very different walks of life from him the contemptuous and yet rather inviting way in which they looked to see if he were interested or disinterested brave or cowardly and yet before he had ever earned any money at all he had always told himself that if only he had a better collar a nicer shirt finer shoes a good suit a swell overcoat like some boys had oh the fine clothes the handsome homes the watches rings pins that some boys sported the dandies many youths of his years already were some parents of boys of his years actually gave them cars of their own to ride in they were to be seen upon the principal streets of kansas city flitting to and fro like flies and pretty girls with them and he had nothing and he never had had and yet the world was full of so many things to do so many people were happy and successful what was he to do which way to turn what one thing to take up and master something that would get him somewhere he could not say he did not know exactly and these peculiar parents were in no way sufficiently equipped to advise him end of book one chapter two